Vipassana knowledge is realizing what are called the three universal characteristics. It's realizing and understanding that everything we experience at the macro level for sure and at the most microscopic level, every pixel of phenomena that we experience arises and passes away, it is impermanent. That's the first insight. The second is that each of these phenomena, each of these pixels of experience has the characteristic of dukkha. Dukkha has a variety of meanings, but one meaning is that it's painful. And we've certainly seen that plenty of our physical and mental experiences are painful. But some aren't painful. But they're still considered dukkha because pleasant experiences don't last. They change. And because of that, they are unreliable as a source or a foundation for our contentment, ease, happiness. That also is dukkha. Dukkha also refers to the fact that experience is maybe painful, certainly is unreliable, but it's often, depending on the quality of our awareness, it's often very oppressive. Just incessant bombardment of all the sense doors with sense contact is tiring, as we know. Seeing this and understanding this about all experience takes continuous attention and a very refined understanding of the way things are. This is the second insight. The third insight is called the anatta characteristic or the insubstantiality of all phenomena. And what that points to is the perception, the recognition, or the realization that everything that we experience arises due to causes and conditions of their own, most of which are outside of our immediate control, and therefore most of our experience is, we could say, not ours. It's not me, it's not mine, it's not who I am. It arises due to impersonal causes and conditions that we have no control over. Well, this knowledge, this insight, is so counterintuitive to what it feels like in our everyday life. It feels like this is my body, this is my mind, I can decide what to do with it, and, and so it's a very challenging understanding to grok conceptually. It's a very subtle experience to realize experientially. But nevertheless, this teaching of the insubstantiality of all phenomena is unique to the Buddha. It's a unique uniquely Buddhist teaching, but it is indispensable to understanding and realizing what the Buddha understood to be the end of suffering. <coughs> Conventionally speaking, we each believe that there's a me in here. There's an enduring entity, well, in my case, called Steve, that owns this body, or that inhabits this body, 
and is intimately tied to, well, the mind. Somehow, maybe it is the mind. And that self, myself, that I posit here in this process, appears to be the one who does things, the master of movement, the controller, the director of thoughts, feelings, actions. It's the one who feels. It's the eternal resident, so to speak, in this process. That's what it appears like to our conventional way of understanding not only ourselves, but each other. But Mahasi Sayadaw, as I mentioned, the grandfather or one of the grandfathers of this tradition of practice, he said, this understanding is merely a concept conjured up in the imagination of ordinary people. It's just a concept. That wouldn't be a problem if it didn't cause us to suffer. But because of our identification with an attachment to this body, this mind, this mental activity, we suffer. The Buddha said, this wrong view of personality or personhood has everywhere and at all times most misled and deluded humankind. It is this wrong understanding which has most misled and deluded all of humankind. Experientially, what the insight into this characteristic reveals is that phenomena is not under our immediate control. And all of this phenomena together does not create a being. Everything that we experience, as I'm sure you're beginning to see pretty consistently, it arises unbidden, it lasts for a while, and it eventually passes away. If you don't want it to arise, can't stop it. If you want it to stay, can't keep it. Not under our control. They are conditioned. It's important that we hear this teaching on the wrong understanding of self so that we can have the right understanding, meaning the understanding the Buddha realized that would lead to the end of suffering. And with that understanding, we'll be supported in our practice to practice confidently and correctly, and to develop the awareness and the insightful understanding that realizes this in order to free the mind from attachment to that which cannot provide peace. I mentioned last night briefly how contrary to our immediate daily perceptions of the sun rising in the east and setting in the west and appears to be traveling around the earth because it comes up the next day, same place. Contrary to our immediate perceptions, we know otherwise. We know it is an illusion that the earth is traveling around the sun, we now understand that the earth is spinning on its axis to create this illusion. Why do we believe that? We believe that because we trust authorities who can observe the heavens in a more refined way than we do with our naked eye, and they can understand how the heavens are moving to create that illusion. 
and we know just enough about it to think they're probably right. And so we agree. The teachings, the Buddhist teachings on the not-self characteristic are similar. It is so contrary or so counterintuitive to our direct and familiar perception. It takes hearing it from those we might consider authorities or those who have some level of realization or insight beyond ours. The Buddha and other enlightened beings who can point to the way they understand this apparent phenomena. And so we've been told that. We don't have to believe it. But having taken it into our mind, it, it lays in the mind as a template of a way to understand our experience. And when awareness matures and sees the incessant arising and passing away of phenomena outside of our immediate control, we begin to get it. Right. Evidently, there really isn't any substantial entity in here. And this understanding grows with increasing perception of the anatta characteristic. So tonight I want to show several, I want to explain a little more and give several examples and show several instances and ways which we believe wrongly about our body, about our mind, about our mental activity, and how that sense of self that we create from this wrong belief and attach to is the source of our suffering. I also want to show how mindfulness deconstructs or pixelates that sense of self into the display of random phenomena that it is and how this reveals the knowledge or gives rise to the understanding of the not-self characteristic of phenomena. And this actually loosens the grip of the mind and frees us from entanglement, the cause of suffering. In the discourse to Magandhya, the Buddha said, I have long been tricked, cheated, and defrauded by this mind. For when clinging, I have been clinging just to material form of the body, the perceptions or memories of the minds, feelings of the heart, formations and thoughts, and the idea of being the knower, consciousness. And with this clinging as a condition, this whole mass of suffering has come to be. That's a pretty bold, unambiguous statement. But let's step back from the Buddhist teaching and consider our own life. We need to have a clear, unambiguous, recurrent sense of ourself in order to make sense of the world and to live in society. If a child does not get, through their own efforts and through their parents' instruction, a sense of themselves as being an autonomous uh, individual, they will really suffer. If we're just not able to individuate and to have a coherent sense of this is my body, these are my feelings, these are my thoughts, those are your feelings, not my feelings and thoughts, we can't navigate relationships 
in life. And that's clearly a lot of suffering. And so in a relative way, in our relationships, in our conventional, worldly, uh, family, social, civic relationships, we need a sense of self. We need a very clearly defined, comprehensive, inclusive, uh, stable sense of self in order to navigate our life. But experientially, through introspection of strong and continuous mindfulness, we cannot find that self. We can only find the pixels of phenomena that arise and pass away that we attach to, conglomerate together, aggregate together, glue it all together and say, this is, this is me, this is mine, this is who I am. So in the practice of awareness, as we're doing here, Mindfulness is like the solvent that we pour on this sense of self to dissolve the glue of identification and see these phenomena for the impersonal, insubstantial, fleeting, not under our control phenomena that they really are. This body, the Buddha said, is like a clump of foam. And you know, if you see a clump of foam going down the drain, going down the river, it's not very substantial. There's nothing there that isn't going to disappear as soon as it hits the rapids or, you know, the sun dries it up. It's just nothing, there's really nothing there. It's an appearance due to conditions, but it's not very substantial. Nevertheless, we look at this body, we feel this body, and we say, this is pretty real. This is pretty solid. This is pretty substantial. And if you try to deny that, the Zen master will hit you with a stick to remind you, you have a body. We get identified with this body in its appearance, how it looks. We stand in front of the mirror, we look at what's in the, reflected in the mirror and we say, that's me. And every morning we affirm that again, and maybe several times a day. We also get identified with the functioning of the body. If it works well, the eyes work, the ears work, and all other parts of the body work well, we're happy. As soon as some part of the body stops working well, or gets or shows symptoms of disease, we're unhappy. Even though we can't control the body and prevent it from doing that. Not only are we identified with and attached to the appearance, size, shape, color, texture of the body, and identified with the functioning of it, whether it's sick, healthy, uh, failing, or whatever, we're also identified with the statistics of the body. How much do you weigh? What's your, uh, what's that body mass index? What's your cholesterol level? What, hey guys, what's your PSA? You know, and depending on what, you know, the lab report comes back with, we can look at those statistics and get frightened by the number associated with this body functioning. We're, we're really identified with our numbers, our statistics. Not only do we identify ourselves through appearance, size, shape, color, texture, and our own functioning and our own statistics, we identify each other in the same way. We look at others as an appearance color, texture, size, shape, statistics, whatever statistics are important to you, and functioning. 
<laughs> we identify ourself and each other self as being synonymous with the body. Well, I'll just list a little bit of the suffering that that involves. Because it's endless, just the burden of, well, caring for this body. Bathing, grooming, dressing, keeping warm, keeping comfortable, keep moving. Do your exercise, do your yoga, do your stretching, do your cardio. Eat several times a day, digest it properly and relieve yourself of the burden. And, well, you know what? You can't get anybody to do it for you. <laughs> You, you, have to, you have to do it for yourself. Now, we accept this burden because we don't see any other option. Really, right? But within that process of caring for this body, how much suffering of self-consciousness with our appearance, anxiety about our health, uh, obsession with uh, size, shape, weight. How much shame is there at the body doing things that we don't want it to do at inappropriate times? Or how much uh, fear is there of caring for this body which inevitably gets sick, incessantly grows older, and we're promised we'll eventually die. Are we, are we ready yet to die? People die at any age. It could be our turn tomorrow, tonight. We don't know that we're going to have breakfast tomorrow. We assume, we pretend, we hope, but we don't know. That knowledge is just on the periphery of our conscious wakefulness all the time. We live with this fear. We live with this anxiety. We live with this self-consciousness. We live with this guilt, this judgment, this anxiety about this body. We can't escape it. We are so identified with the body. We do what we can. We take our vitamins, we eat well, we eat organic, we go for our runs, our jog, or this or that. We do everything we can, and we still have this insecurity. Ouch. That's not to say that we shouldn't care for the body. We should. We should take care of the body in ways that are appropriate physically, mentally, uh, eat well, get your exercise, love yourself appropriately. Use food to maintain health, but not to cause unhealthy conditions. But we should also be honest and undertake the practices that remind us to prepare for a change. We may be healthy today, but we should never forget. And we should remind ourselves, we should actually, as the Buddha suggested, daily reflect on the fact that this body is subject to getting sick. So that when it happens, we don't think there's something wrong. It's not, when you get sick, there's not something wrong. Staying well is more like what's not normal. The body is bound to get sick. We should never be surprised when it is. So too, the body ages. And for those of us who've had the opportunity to see the undeniable signs of aging, did you ever get a glimpse? I mean, and sometimes it's so... Uh, it's so mundane. You just see the texture on the back, texture of the skin on the back of your hand, and you just kind of project ahead about 20 years, 
and your hand looks like your grandmother's. Sometimes that's scary. Sometimes it's terrifying to know that's the path ahead. And we get more and more glimpses where they come faster and clearer the older we get. Because inside, it's really amazing, inside we don't age. The body ages. My mind still thinks I'm 32, <laughs> 26, or whatever, right? I mean, it's like the mind, the mind doesn't grow old. So we want to, um, you know, have a more balanced relationship. I mean, one that has some insight into this body and begin to, you know, acknowledge and accept what we see, what we know, both theoretically and experientially about it. Well, what do we know about this body? When we sit down on the cushion and we close our eyes and we start paying attention to what this body feels like, there isn't any one of us that has ever found a knee or an elbow in there, or a back, or any other anatomical place. All we see, all we can directly perceive is pressure, aching, hardness, tightness, tensing, throbbing, pulsing, vibrating, twisting, stretching. That's it. Which of those sensations is you? It doesn't make sense, does it, to get identified with, oh, this, this stabbing, this pulsing, this throbbing, twisting, aching, that's the real me. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. That, that, that's, that's clearly wrong. And yet, from our direct perception, that's all we see. That's all we can taste. That's all we can feel about the body. The Buddha in the language of his days, identified the direct perception of the body as of the four elements. Earth element, fire element, water element, and the air element. Earth element is experienced as hardness and softness or anything on that spectrum. Air element is experienced as movement, the pulsing, the movement, the, the waves of lightness that you feel sometimes, the tingling, the numbness, all air element. The uh, fire element is when we feel hot, cold, anything having to do with temperature. And the water element is the sense of cohesion, things holding together. Sometimes we feel tears, sometimes we feel saliva. But that's all there is. There really is a pretty small repertoire of physical phenomena that we can directly perceive is the body. And when we see it, as we spend more time experiencing the body as it is, without the conceptual overlay of anatomy, we decondition our identification with it as a whole. Pack it all together, stick it in a skin, put some makeup on it, stand it in front of a mirror, that's me. <laughs> It's just a bundle of sensations. Okay. In the Visuddhimagga, the path of purification, a, a comprehensive meditation manual written about 500 years after the Buddha, Buddha Gosa, the author, wrote, the characteristic of anatta, or this impersonality, is not obvious because the concept of a solid entity obscures it when attention is not given separately to the distinct phenomena. So when we see it as a whole, a package, a singularity, we don't see it. We don't see the impersonality of it. But when the different phenomena, sight, sound, colors, earth, air, fire, water, when the different phenomena are seen separately and the conceptual solid entity is broken up, 
then the characteristic of impersonality becomes obvious automatically. With a balanced relationship to the body, not an unhealthy fascination and adoration of the body, but not a dismissive, uh, careless relationship to the body, then we can be comfortable. We can be at home. We can be uh, realistic about what to expect from the body as far as health, as far as aging. And we can accept the aging and the eventual death of the body because we understand it is not me, it is not mine, it's not who I am. And we can get a glimpse of that and we can see the truth of that in a newborn baby. When you see a newborn baby, you see they are not yet identified with their body. They don't even know they got a body, except when it's hungry, they cry and things like that. But their hand, they don't know that's their hand waving in front of them. Or when we see some elderly person who is about to die, their mind can be so young, fresh, alert, and their body is wasted and gone. And it's clear that they, as a person, as a self, are not the body. But in the meantime, between between being a baby and an elderly about to die, we live with this illusion. Oh yeah, this, this, this really is me. As we pay attention and as we see more clearly the elemental phenomena that makes up this body, even the sights, the sounds, we begin to let go loosen the grip of our identification with it. For many um, years, I had uh, intestinal distress all through uh, college and afterwards and into my early years of practice, even until I got into the monastery in Burma. And I, I went to every kind of medical practitioner and quack you could think of that I could find. I went to the allopathic people and then, you know, they said, oh, take antacids, you got too much acid. I went to the chiropractors who said, oh, you're number three and four out of whack, let me put them back into place, <laughs> snap, crack. I went to the acupuncture, said your meridians need a little balancing and stuck needles all through me. I went to the person who does crystals and they said, oh, you need some purple here, some of that there, and they laid on the bed and got crystallized. And <laughs> I tried everything. I even went to a Burmese doctor, traditional Burmese medicine doctor. He did his diagnosis by putting a cigar between my big toe and the second toe of my foot and testing me. Then he lit the cigar, <laughs> put it back between the same two toes and tested me again. Took the difference between the two and said, oh, this is what you need, nerve massage. The most excruciating massage I ever had. Nothing about muscles and gentle. It was pure nerve on bone. Rub it in. <laughs> Terrible. I still had the intestinal distress. Until, <laughs> and for months at the monastery, I recorded everything I ate, how much, when I went to the bathroom, and what this intestinal distress symptoms were. Could not figure it out. And I said, can't do it. Don't know. All I have to do, all I can do, is pay attention. And as soon as I started paying attention to sensations as sensations, not me, not mine, not my stomach. It's just stuff. It's just sensations happening. I got a much more balanced relationship to it all. And in a fairly short time, there was no more intestinal distress. It was the purple, you're right. Another time I was practicing and practice was going well and there was a lot of momentum and it just became very light in the mind, very light in the body. 
so light, in fact, that I didn't, couldn't really feel the substance of the body. And there was a period of time for a few weeks in the monastery where I couldn't tell without looking whether I had my robes on. And so before I would step out of my room, I had to look to make sure, because I felt naked all the time. I was so insubstantial. So I was telling my teacher about this one time, and I said, you know, it's like this, and I always feel like I'm kind of naked walking around. I don't feel my robes, and I've got to look to make sure they're on. He said, this is what a baby feels like before they get identified with their body. It is possible through our practice of mindfulness and awareness and insight to disentangle identification with this body. And then you see, we are not the body. The other half of this package is the mind. Now the mind is this elaborate, intricate, interweaving of thoughts, feelings, memories, decisions. It is just incessantly running through our mind that we see and identify with. In fact, we, we talk about ourselves to ourselves all the time. Here I am, yogi on retreat, day number three, how's it going? Pretty good sitting this morning. And everything that happens to us gets woven into the tapestry of my life, everything. And we reaffirm it over and over and over again daily with this endless monologue, this is who I am. The strength of our identification with the mind is in part due to the recurrent appearance of memories, habits of the mind, likes and dislikes, choices that we make, and they appear to be inherent within us. They appear to be intractable. How can you, I mean, as you know, we, we see our preferences and we just think, how can I, I, I can't change my preferences. I have these preferences. They are inherent within me. That's what it feels like. And yet, we don't see until mindfulness is really sharp that these are just recurrent, similar things, not the same thing. Now, recently it has become, we've, we, we've learned about the fact that each of us comes into this world with a genetic profile. And this genetic profile carries the coding of our species and the history of our family of origin. And we each have our own unique genome. It's promised that in the future, if we can, or when we can, have our own genome decoded, we will be able to identify the weaknesses in our genes for certain uh, unhealthy, possible unhealthy conditions in our life. And we can use that knowledge to live more skillfully and avoid those behaviors and diets and whatnot that might activate the unhealthy genes. And we can also see the strengths and the, 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 the benefits in our uh, genome and enhance them to live a more healthy, uh, productive, happy life physically. Right? The Buddha identified that we also come into this world with what we'd have to call the mental genome or a mental legacy. You know how when you see, I remember when our, not youngest, our youngest granddaughter was born. She came into the world just like a tulku, 
She looked like a tukul. She acted like a tukul. She was like, and she still is like that. She's so different than her sister. She's got a, her own distinct personality from the first second out of the womb. Where'd that come from? Well, the Buddha said, because of continuity conditioning, we come into this world with a mental legacy of all past mental conditioning. And he identified a number of areas. One area is karma. Most of us understand karma. We may or may not believe it, but we see that there is a package of wholesome and unwholesome actions taken in the past that produce their results as pleasant and unpleasant phenomena in this life, depending on conditions. Some of us come into the world with a wholesome, what we call, parami profile. You know, the paramis are those qualities of mind that the Bodhisattva perfected in order to become a Buddha. Generosity, loving-kindness, equanimity, truthfulness, renunciation, resoluteness, and a number of them. We, too, have a parami profile. Some of us are stronger, just naturally, in generosity profile, generosity parami. Some of us are more compassionate, just spontaneously, easily compassionate. Some of us have a strong commitment to integrity. Some of us are very resolved, unwavering once a decision is made. Others are, of us are just dissipated. Why is that? Where does that capacity come from? Well, the Buddha understand, understood it as coming from past parami development. Not only do we have a wholesome profile of paramis, we have a potential unwholesome profile of what are called the latent defilements, the anusia. Tendency towards pride, tendency towards sloth and torpor, tendency towards self-identification, tendency towards greed, tendency towards aversion. And it's as if we have, it's as if our mind is a soundboard with these ten levers for the paramis that are set at their own place, these seven uh, levers set for the seven anusias, and so on and so forth. We also come in with, and many of you have heard about, the Buddhist personality types. You know, either a greed type, a hate, uh, aversive type, or a deluded type, or a faith type, a wisdom type, or a thinking type. Six personality types. And, you know, it doesn't take too much paying attention to your own mind to get a sense of whether you're a greed type or an aversive type or deluded type. If you don't know which one you are, you're the deluded type. <laughs> Why is it we have these recurrent likes, dislikes, preferences, tendencies, habits that seem so inherent within us? Mental legacy. The Buddha looked at all this and said, all of these activities of mind, feelings, the liking and disliking of pleasant and unpleasant, the perceptions, the memories, the thoughts, the plans, all of these are just recurrent pixels of phenomena. They're not yours. They seem like they are ours, they're mine, because they're so familiar. They've arisen hundreds of thousands of times, and we've reaffirmed them. You know, I prefer chocolate over vanilla. I always, always have, probably always will. That must be me. It's just a preference that I have affirmed over and over and over again, but it's not inherent. So we have this, the Buddha saying, our feelings, pleasant and unpleasant, are like bubbles in a stream. They are as insubstantial as bubbles in a stream. 
Our perceptions are like a shimmering mirage. Intentions are like a banana trunk. You know, banana trunk doesn't have any core to it. It's just layers of layers of water, really. That's about it. And all of this is woven into the story of my life. Consciousness is the vehicle of all of our thoughts. It generates all these thoughts, or we should say all the thoughts, all of our thoughts come through consciousness, which the Buddha likened to a magician's illusion. We see the illusion, or I should say, we hear the illusion as the narrator of our life. The story of my life, which is going on in this mind 24-7, just over and over and over again, is thoughts. It's just thoughts. But it is a comprehensive and a repetitive and a recurring series of thoughts and memories and plans and judgments and feelings. You'd think we would be able to select the thoughts, the feelings, the memories, the perceptions that most enhance our self-image. Right? You'd think we could. We can't. We each have plenty of self-loathing, self-hatred, guilt, fear, shame, humiliation that we try to keep out, and we're pretty good at it. But it's a struggle. There's a tremendous amount of struggling to edit the monologue to our liking, hoping that we can present ourselves in such a way that others will believe us and reaffirm the sense of self that we are showing them. We suffer when they don't. Did you ever try to present yourself as something to someone who didn't believe you? And you just don't. It's painful. And we're doing that all the time with each other. I see people come in for you know, the check-in, the group check-in or the individual check-in, only telling me all the good things about their practice. Never anything difficult or painful in their practice. Other people come in, they're all just always an emotional wreck. <laughs> That's their identity. That's their identification. That's what they identify with. We are vulnerable to the skeletons of our mental closet being exposed to ourselves and to others. And because of that, we suffer. We're scrambling to hold together our sense of self keep out the unwanted, and present ourselves to the world in a way that we can get affirmed positively. But myself is just a thought-constructed illusion. What mindfulness does is shows us what it is that we're actually experiencing what it is that we're identifying with and hanging on to. It shows us what we are rejecting and denying or minimizing in our life. And with this comes, well, <clears throat> shame, fear, uh, sense of loss, and, and basically a struggle to present ourselves, to maintain our sense of self as we think we should be. So much of our mental and physical behavior is on automatic pilot. So much. And I'm sure you see how much of your life even here is just on automatic pilot. You don't have to be there for your life. You can eat a meal without really paying attention. You can go to the toilet without really paying attention. You can walk from here to the dining room without really noticing it. Your mind can be elsewhere. 
Some people think that's multitasking. Really, that's spacing out. So mindfulness exposes this suffering, and with it we can begin to uh, confront our shame, our guilt, our insecurities, the skeletons of our closet, and to see that what we're identified with is no more who we are than what we deny about ourselves. Neither one is who we really are. What we see is a, an incessant process of phenomena arising and passing away that if we're not mindful of, we select and reject as we choose. If we are mindful of, we see that they come due to their own conditions. They leave due to their own conditions. We don't need to select, reject, hang on, or get rid of. They go by themselves. When we see this and really can begin to rest in the awareness that this is the way it is, we stop suffering. We don't have a self, a solid self, to defend. We're not disengaged from the world. We don't disappear. We don't fly off, we don't become psychotic, we don't become a mumbling, bumbling idiot. We just aren't identified with any particular experience, memory, plan, decision that we've made or have to make, and yet we do what we can and live in the world. It's a composite picture. <laughs> as we begin to see, as I said, the more familiar we get with letting go of our sense of self, the more we can open to the fullness of what this life is offering us. And when we let go, we don't let go of life. We don't let go of anything except the suffering that comes with attachment. Don Juan, that great spiritual teacher of Carlos Castaneda in the last century, he said, a spiritual warrior doesn't need a personal history. One day he or she finds it's no longer necessary and drops it. The art of a warrior is to balance the terror of being with the wonder of being. And the way to stop the inner dialogue, I call it a monologue, is to use exactly the same method used to teach us to talk to ourselves. We were taught compulsively and unwaveringly, and this is the way we must stop it, compulsively and unwaveringly. Once inner silence is realized, anything is possible. So, a couple of years ago, several years ago now, I had a flight from San Francisco to Boston to get to a retreat. I was living in the San Francisco area at the time. And a couple of days before I was to fly, I realized that I was going to arrive a day late. So I had to try to get a flight a day earlier. So I called the airlines and I said, I need to fly standby on a flight to Boston from San Francisco. Are there any empty seats? They looked up in their flight plan and they said, plenty. The plane's half empty. No problem. Come on down. So packed my bags, drove to the airport, got to the airport. It was a night, uh, a red eye, 10 o'clock at night or whatever. And 
went to the counter. It was pandemonium. <laughs> I finally got up to the counter. I said, what's going on? I want to fly standby. That flight leaving, whatever, going to Boston. They said, you're out of luck. One of our Boston flights got canceled. All of those people are trying to get on that plane. It's overbooked. I said, oh, I need to be on that plane. I said, can I fly standby? And they said, well, we'll give you a standby card. You can go up to the gate, but I don't think so. So I said, well, I'm a frequent flyer. I'm a premier, premier executive. <laughs> if, uh, if there's an empty seat, I'd like to have that, okay? Go to the gate. I went to the gate, pandemonium there too. Went up to the, got up to the counter and said, I'm flying standby. They said, not a chance. I'm a frequent flyer, premier. Premier executive, frequent flyer. If there's an empty seat on that flight, I'd like to get on. They said, well, I don't think so, but just wait over there with the others who want to fly standby. <laughs> oh, okay. So they were trying to get everybody on the plane so we could leave on time, so they could leave on time. Got everybody on the plane and uh, trying to close the gate and get out, and trying to close the door and get out on time. And they said to the three of us who wanted to fly standby, come down the, come down the, the entry thing to the door of the plane and if there's an empty seat, we'll put you on. By the way, I'm a frequent flyer, <laughs> premier executive. If there's one empty seat, I'd like to have that one. Okay, okay, just come down to the plane. So they putting everybody, sitting everybody down, checking the toilet, see that nobody's hiding in the toilet. They got everybody to sit down and they said, there's one seat left. I said, I'm a frequent flyer. <laughs> and I said, okay, 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 okay. Up there in the back, you know, last seat in the middle between a couple of big guys. I was so happy to get on the plane. I took my bags, put them overhead, no room overhead. Had to put them under my feet, cramped, two big football player size guys, you know, just like but I said, what, what does it matter? I'm on the way, I'm gonna get there in time, great. Okay, no problem, I'm settling in and just kinda <laughs> trying to get comfortable. And they found another seat. And so the second person, they waved him on to, oh, come in, you can sit over there. And uh, they got the second person on flying standby. Okay, everybody's sitting down, they closed the door, they did a, la a destination check. This plane is flying to Boston. If you're not intended to go to Boston, please let us know, ba 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 somebody in first class, I'm not going to Boston. Got up, they opened the door, let them off the plane, and they said to the last person wanting to fly standby, come on in, you can sit in first class. I said, now wait a minute, ding, 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 ding. I'm the frequent flyer, I'm a premier executive frequent flyer, can I have their first class seat? You got your seat, sit down, we're leaving. I said, no, I'm, I, okay, close the door. You, you got your seat, we're going to Boston. For the first half hour of that flight, I was steaming. I was so angry. Like, why didn't I, I'm entitled to get that first class seat. I'm a premier executive, frequent flyer with United. They should value me more than that. I was steaming. And after about a half hour, I realized, you know what? I got another five and a half hours going to Boston. <laughs> If I don't let go of this, I'm gonna be a wreck. So he said, I'm on the plane. What the heck, what's it like? Well, here I am, I'm on the plane, so what? And I just said, okay, here I am. This is what's happening. This is the way it is for now. Got to Boston, no problem. Still a frequent flyer, still, <laughs> still the premier executive. I still fly United. What happened? All I did was let go of my identification with being entitled to the benefits of a frequent flyer, a premier executive, and just let it go. I didn't disappear. I'm still a frequent flyer. I still get my upgrades. The only thing that happened is the story I was telling myself about who I am that was causing me so much suffering I let go of it. It's just a story. I'm a frequent flyer. But it was causing me suffering. My sense of myself wasn't being affirmed 
by United Airlines. But really, I didn't need them to affirm it. I could let go of it. When we let go of our identification, the only thing that happens is we stop suffering. You still live in the world, you still have the same relationships, you still got your same job, you still got your same frequent flyer number, you just don't suffer. I have a question for you. What story about your suffering have you been telling yourself today? just a story. So let's sit for a moment and let the words quiet down. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.